Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, howdy WCC, that is really hot. You got it? All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you're turning, let me, I do want to say uh, thank you to all the VBS workers and all the kids and families. Um, it was just a really wonderful week. Thank you, Morgan. God bless you all for that. Uh, also, George talked about rest and vacation, and he's right. We need it. And uh, I think about half of our church is on rest vacation right now, which is good. And I'm going to be taking, I, I mentioned this in an email, but I'm going to be taking uh, all, um, no preaching during the month of July. And also what I've decided to do, I'm not even going to send out the weekly emails. Um, I'm just going to really take a break. We were talking, our family has not had anything. My, actually, Andy and Shelby are gone right now to the beach. But um, I was talking about, I was talking to the family, and we were saying since it was before COVID was the last time we had anything more than like an extended weekend. So we're going to take off a bunch during the month of July because we do need the rest, as George said. All right, we are continuing through the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And the title of my sermon is Draw Near and Hold Fast. Um, let me, let's go ahead and read it. Let's read Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, just to kind of get a feel for the passage. All right? Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so as a reminder, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are suffering And actually, since chapter 4, and we'll see this, since chapter 4, the writer has been stressing the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. And if you want to understand Jesus being our high priest, anywhere in the scriptures, you've got to go to the book of Hebrews. This is where, this is what we've been looking at. So the writer's been talking about how Jesus is our great high priest, and it's only through Christ and his sacrifice that we have access to God the Father. And the writer has been stressing the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was better than the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. So the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the point of those things was not to take away sin. They couldn't take away sin. The point of those animal sacrifices was to point forward to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now the writer is going to start in chapter 10, the writer is going to start applying this truth to our lives. Okay? So beginning in verse 19, this is a transition point in the book. Because this, he begins really the application part of the book of Hebrews. And if you've read Paul's writings, you know that Paul often does this. He will teach these great truths of the faith. And then he will begin, there'll be a transition, and he'll begin applying the truth. You can see this in Romans and Ephesians and all these other books. That's normally what Paul does, okay? And that's what the writer of Hebrews does. 
And that's why he begins in verse 19 with that word, therefore. Okay? So he's beginning this, this transition into application. But before he jumps into the application, he's going to offer a brief summary of everything that he's been teaching. And that's what he's doing in verses 19 to 21. It's a summary statement. So if you look at verse 19, look at it. He says, since we have confidence. And then if you look down at verse 21, he says, and since we have a great high priest. So in verses 19 through 21, he summarizes everything that he's been teaching before about Jesus being our high priest. And that's why he says, since we have, since we have. And then he makes the application, and I'm trying to give you a big picture of this, this section. So he uses the phrase, let us, as the application. So since we have these things, now let us do this, okay? So this is the application. Three times he says, let us. If you look at verse 22, he says, let us draw near. And then in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast. And then in verse 24, he says, let us consider, Okay? So these two statements, since we have, these two summary statements become the foundation for the three exhortations about let us, these let us statements, okay? So before we, I'm going to show you something though, before we get to the three exhortations, let's take a look at the since we have statements, okay, which again are the foundations for the rest of the passage. And we have a slide, this is Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 21, I'm going to read it again. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. First of all, notice that he, he addresses us as brothers, brothers and sisters. As Marcus said, he's showing that God's people are a family. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters. We have the same heavenly father, our dad. And we share this family bond because of Jesus, who's not only our Savior and King and High Priest, he's also our older brother in the, in the household of God. And then the writer says, as New Covenant believers, as brothers and sisters, he says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. And when he says the holy places, what he's talking about is being in the presence of God. And you can see this, actually flip back to Hebrews 9, verse 24, just a chapter before He's talking about the holy places. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 24. He says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, that's on earth, which are copies of the true things, heaven, but into heaven itself. So he's talking about holy places, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the writer's been saying in the old covenant there was this barrier after barrier between the people and God okay but now we have this confidence to enter into the presence of God into the holy places in the old covenant it was barrier after barrier even if you were a priest you were permitted only to go you were the only one who could go into the temple or tabernacle but even for the priest there was this one room the holy of holies that nobody else could go into except one man the high priest and he could only go in there once a year and that was symbolizing the presence of God So only the high priest could enter behind the veil or behind the curtain. And again, he could only do this once a year. So God is showing in the Old Covenant that there were these barriers between God and humanity. But now the writer is saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. He's saying, we don't have any obstacles. 
between us and God. We can have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. And then he says, we can enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus laid down his life. That's the only reason we can have confidence to to have this intimate and personal access to God. In other words, now we have this freedom and we should have this confidence to come right into the presence of God. If you look at verse 20, he describes the path or the way by which we come into the presence of God. So he says in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So he's saying the way into the presence of God is new. It's new, it's a new covenant, it's new because until Jesus' death, this way to God was not previously available. This way, this path into the very presence of God, into this intimate relationship with God was not available prior to Jesus' death. That's why it's new. He also says it's a living way. It's a living way. What does that mean? I think he's saying that this way leads to life. It leads to eternal life. And it's living in the sense that our relationship with God is alive. It's, it's not dead. Our relationship with God is alive. It's dynamic. When you come into the presence of God, you come alive to him. And you come alive to his love for you. Okay? So our relationship with God is not dead. It's alive. It's a growing relationship with our Lord. And the path we're on leads to eternal life. And we come into his presence again. We come alive to him. Verse 20 also says that this new and living way has been opened for us, is an interesting phrase, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This is just saying, so again, this picture of tabernacle or temple, this is just saying that when Jesus offered up his body, his flesh, in death, it was like Jesus, metaphorically, being ripped into, just like the curtain in the temple was ripped into. You may remember in the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, immediately after that, the temple curtain or the veil in the temple, into the Holy of Holies, was torn in two. It was ripped from top to bottom. And that showed, God was showing, that the presence, that the way into his presence, the presence of God, was now available because that curtain was ripped in two. So the writer here is just taking that picture. And he's saying that Jesus' body was like that veil, that curtain in the temple. And it was like Jesus' body being ripped in two, which opened up access for us to God. So the tearing of Jesus' flesh symbolizes his complete surrender and his offering for our sins. So this new and living way to God was provided by Jesus' body being offered as a sacrifice for us. Okay, So Christ's sacrifice on the cross tore the veil. This is huge for us. It removed the separation between God and us. So in Christ, we can have direct access to the Father in intimacy and love. This is a huge thing. Now, also, Jesus is is not just a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, but Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just explain how we can get to the Father like a wise man. He's actually made the way. And in fact, he is the way, right? He is the way to God. No one can come to the Father except through faith in Christ, except through him. And as it says in Hebrews 6, Jesus has gone into the heavenly holy of holies, the true holy of holies, where the throne room of God is, behind the curtain, as a forerunner, as a trailblazer who's opened the way, and now we can follow in that way. 
and Jesus is the only way to the Father. So just as a, as a time here, I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about the wonder and the beauty and the grace displayed in the fact that Christ has provided us with this new and living way into the presence of God. This is so incredible, and this is just unbelievable to me, that we can come into the presence of God anytime, anywhere. I'd like to also stress something here. When we're talking about the opportunity to come into the presence of God, I know, this is just the way it is, I know there are people in here who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. So I'll just issue the invitation right here. Turn to Christ. Because if you have not turned to Jesus in faith, then the way to God is not open for you. If you have not given your life to Christ, then God's judgment hangs over you. The only way anyone can come into the presence of God and be accepted by him and be saved is through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who laid down his life for his people. So I would just ask you, don't turn away from him. Come to him in faith. He welcomes you. All right, now let's turn to Hebrews 10, verse 21, okay? This is the second summary of what the writer has been teaching. The first, remember, was in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Now in verse 21, he says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. When the writer says that Jesus is our great high priest over the house of God, when he talks about the house of God, he's talking about the people of God. That's what Hebrews 3, 6 says, that we are his house. So the house of God is the household of believers. So the writer is emphasizing the greatness of Jesus Christ as our high priest. He's over God's house. He is in authority over the people of God. And in verse 21, Hebrews 10, verse 21, the the writer again emphasizes that Jesus is our high priest. And we've been talking about that for a long time. But just as a reminder, as our great high priest, Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. He stands as our advocate before the Father. And at this point, we should remember prior passages in Hebrews where the writer has told us about Jesus' work as our high priest. And in many of those passages, the writer has been encouraging us that because Christ is our high priest, we need to draw near to God. Jesus, this is huge. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. That means he has been tempted as we are. You know what that means? That means he knows what you're going through because he's fully human. Jesus understands no matter what you're going through, he understands. He can sympathize with us and he loves us. He cares. All right. Okay. Those are the two foundational summaries. Since we have confidence to enter into God's presence and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Now the writer is going to give us these three points of application. As I said, he's going to say, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. Before looking at those, I do want to show you something, and maybe this is just the nerd in me, but this is an interesting literary device in the book of Hebrews, and it's called an inclusio. It's like the word inclusion with the end dropped off, an inclusio. It's a bracketing structure that they would use And what it does, it creates a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a passage. So in Hebrews, there is this inclusio beginning in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 4 and ending at Hebrews 10. And I love this. Notice how similar Hebrews 4, I'm going to read it to you. This is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And compare it to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Listen, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Notice the similarities. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see how similar this is to Hebrews 10? It's very, very similar. We've got a slide on this. Yeah, look at it. Look at, look at how similar these are. So this is this inclusio, this bracket. He says, since then, in, ver- in 4, he says, since then we have a great high priest. In Hebrews 10, he says, in the middle section, since we have a great high priest. Hebrews 4, let us hold fast our confession. At the end of Hebrews 10, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, let us draw near. Okay, so the, the writer is showing in this inclusio, this bracketed section, he's finished up. What he's saying is he's finished up this deep teaching on Jesus being our high priest. So he's been, as I said, he's been giving us this profound teaching. And now he's going to start applying these truths to our lives. And this is the call to God on our lives, right? When he gives us these deep teaching, it's not just so we can have this, these facts in our heads. It's for, to apply these to our lives. Okay, and so now in Hebrews 10, verses 22 to 25, he's going to start the application with these three exhortations. In other words, he's saying, this is who Christ is. This is what he's done. Now, in light of that, this is how you should live, okay? Uh, I'm going to show you this, too. Look at Hebrews 10. I love this. This is real quick. By the way, I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, we can talk about it if you're interested. But I do think that the writer of the book of Hebrews was very familiar with Paul's teaching. Very, very familiar. Because look at this. Look at Hebrews 10.22. Notice this. So cool. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Faith. Faith. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast confession of our what? Hope. So we got faith and hope. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to what? Love. Faith, hope, and love in that order. So I think this guy is very familiar with Paul's teachings. All right, let's look at the detail of the three exhortations. Hebrews 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first exhortation is this, draw near. Let us draw near, draw near to God. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer has encouraged us to draw near to God. And because the Bible is God's word, that means God himself is inviting us, he's commanding us to draw near to him. Really, I was thinking we're reading through Genesis Remember, the, it, we'll get to it in our reading, but after Adam and Eve sinned, they're cast out of the garden. There's an angel there with a flaming sword keeping them out. There's a separation. So you got creation, you got fall, and ever since that time when they were cast out of the garden with the angel with a flaming sword keeping them out, keeping them separated from God, God has now been on a mission to draw people near to him, to draw his people near to him. And that's the story of redemption, Right? That's it. So God, again, is commanding us, inviting us, encouraging us to draw near 
to him. And I just am amazed that God who is holy, who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, who made you, invites you to draw near to him. What a privilege. All right, so since we have confidence to enter, since we have sympathetic grace, great high priest, now we're told draw near to God. Drawing near to God simply means that we have a desire for intimacy with him. We have a longing to be in close communion with our Father. However, this this invitation comes with a condition. We're to draw near to him, it says, with a true heart. So our approach to God must be sincere and genuine. It means being honest with him, acknowledging our weaknesses and sin, acknowledging our need for him. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. So that means coming to God without any superficiality. In other words, when you're praying, when you're talking with God, just be real. Don't be surface level with your father. Be genuine and sincere when you draw near to God. Just be real with him. We're also told to come in full assurance of faith, meaning we draw near to God with a firm conviction that he is Lord and he hears us. So full assurance of faith, full assurance of faith that the Bible is true, right? That what he says is true, that his promises are true. With full confidence about who he is. So, so I think what this is saying is objective truth is just a huge part of our faith. Christianity is built on absolute truth. And we need to have full assurance of our, that our faith is true. I preach every single Easter, I preach on Jesus' resurrection. But thinking about the, the truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that's not just for Easter. I'm guessing you'd probably be surprised at how often I think about Jesus' resurrection and the overwhelming evidence of the resurrection. This is, how, this is one of the ways I get full assurance of faith. It's funny, when I was an agnostic, I used to think that to be a Christian, you had to check your brain at the door, right? That you couldn't be a thinking person and be a, and, and be a serious Christian. But now, and I I usually don't say this to non-Christians, but now because of the overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, honestly, I think you have to check your brain at the door to deny the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence for for Jesus' resurrection is just overwhelming. And I've said this before too. Young people, I don't want you to believe in Christ simply because your parents believe. I want you to believe because it's true. I want you to have full assurance of faith. That's what the writer is talking about here, okay? All right, now now I'll say this too. Ultimately, I am a Christian because God has done a work in my heart. The Holy Spirit has given me life. That's the way it is for all of you who put your faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has done it. But for me, the evidence of, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, God used that to bring spiritual life to me. And that's why I often think about Jesus' resurrection because I do this to give me full assurance of faith. That's what he's talking about here. So it's rock-solid assurance that God's real, that Jesus is the only way. And again, this helps me draw near to God, draw near to the Lord in love and full assurance of faith. All right, back to verse 22. Writer says, we are to draw near to God with our heart. He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, what does that mean? He's saying this, because of what Jesus has done, you can draw near to God because you've already had your heart sprinkled clean. So this is a, the verb form is, is a past action with continuing results. In other words, through Christ's sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We can approach God 
without fear or doubt, knowing that we are accepted and loved because of Christ. The imagery of hearts being sprinkled clean and bodies being washed with pure water, this is a reference to the cleansing and sanctifying work of Christ. So through his blood, our consciences are purified from guilt and condemnation. And when it says our bodies washed with pure water, that could be a little subtle reference to baptism. I'm not, saying it's not, I'm not saying it's definitely not that. But really, I think what it's talking about is how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He cleanses our souls through the Word of God. Okay, why do I say that? We've got a couple of verses. This is Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26, and Titus 3. Listen to this phrasing of washing of water. And it's not talking about baptism. It's about the Holy Spirit using the Word to sanctify us. This is Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, Christ, may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Titus 3, 5, something similar. It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I think this con- when, the, when the New Testament is talking about this concept of washing of water, this is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit uses God's word to sanctify us, to cleanse us. And this is not external. This is not behavior modification, right? This is real heart change. So in Hebrews 10.22, the picture of being washed with pure water symbolizes the internal work of the Holy Spirit who uses his word to transform us from the inside out. And what the writer is saying is that this cleansing then enables us to draw near to God with confidence. Because now we're free from the dirt and condemnation of our past sins. So again, draw near to the Lord. That's the bottom line. That's what God is saying. Draw near to him. And you can do this anywhere. Draw near to him throughout your day, every day. We are to draw near to him. He is here in a special way when we gather together to worship him. He is. So this is an important part of that. But also drawing near should be done constantly in just your daily life. Come to him in prayer. As you read the Bible, hear him speaking to you. We've gotten in the habit of reading the Psalms over and over again. And in those, uh, we're just asking the Lord just to speak to us in that way, in an intimate way, through his word. Something I do is this, and it may sound goofy, but I like to play praise music. And I play it real loud. And while it's playing, I will... Thank God. I will talk to him out loud while I'm playing this. I'll make my request known to him. I'll praise him. I'll confess my sins. And I do all this while this praise music is playing loud. I would encourage you to, to try it. And I'd encourage you to do it in a private place. Otherwise, people will think you're crazy, right? But if you're crazy, who cares, right? As Wayne Jennings said, I've always been crazy, but it kept me from going insane. So d- deep thoughts right there. All right. So God wants you to draw near to him in love and faith. He wants this for you, and here's the thing, it brings joy. It brings joy. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. So draw near to the Lord. All right, that's verse 22. I'm going to skip over verse 23, and I'm going to come back to it at the end, but let's look at verses 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So remember the two foundational principles. Since we have confidence to enter into God's presence, and since we have a great high priest who intercedes for us, since we have these things, 
He says, draw near. And now the writer is saying, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So here God is calling us to actively seek ways to encourage and motivate our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, consider, give thought. Give thought to how we can encourage each other to live lives characterized by love and good deeds. In other words, we are to look for opportunities to build up one another and encourage one another in the faith. God does not call us into his family to be lone wolf Christians. He doesn't want us just to be focused on ourselves or focused on our immediate families. He calls us into the family of God to love each other and look for ways to encourage and encourage one another to love and good works. Okay? And then in verse 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So the writer here warns us against neglecting to meet together. And that means that God is the one who is warning us. So God is warning us. He's saying, you better keep meeting together. Okay? That's what God is telling us. You better keep meeting together. He's saying, you are my family. You are my sons and daughters. And as my family, you better keep meeting together as my people. And I've said this before. Jesus has gifts that he wants to give you when you gather with God's people. So don't miss out on those gifts. So I would say this. I know that summer is a time of vacation. And I know with school schedule, now it's kind of compressed. You know, it's a, I know it's a handful of weeks. So lots of people are gone. And that's fine. If you're out of town or you're sick, that's, it's totally understandable. But if you're in town and you're well and you're able to come, please make it a commitment to be in church. And so the writer's saying that to meet together, and I don't think this is just applying to Sunday mornings. I also think it means to, to in small groups and being in homes for meals and just hanging out together, spending time together. As a family of God, we're called to live life together as a family, as brothers and sisters. There's a great, you know what, there's a great temptation to be alone. There's a great temptation to withdraw from one another. And you see this all the time in our day. There are lots of people who claim to be Christians, but they don't gather with God's people. That's not good. And by the way, I'd say this, watching a church service on Facebook Live or YouTube is not meeting together. Watching a service online is not gathering together. We're humans. God has given us bodies, and meeting together means our bodies are in the same room with other people, okay? That's meeting together. And as I said, I recognize there is a huge temptation to withdraw from the church, but we must fight the temptation to isolate. Gathering together as the body of Christ is not merely a suggestion. It's a command by God, and it's a vital part of our lives. And he does it for our good. He does it for our growth and for our joy. So it's through corporate worship and teaching and fellowship, relationships with one another, that we're equipped and strengthened in our faith. And again, God, right here, God is calling you to prioritize gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, let's look at the verse, end of verse 25. He says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in the context of meeting together, the writer emphasizes the importance of encouraging one another. Mo- I would say this. He's talking about encouraging one another, right? Most folks don't get a lot of encouragement. So that's a challenge for us, a challenge that God is giving us through this passage. God is saying, listen, as my sons and daughters, you need each other. You need to encourage one another. He's saying, I brought you into this family so that you would encourage one another and love each other, so spend time with each other. You know, life can be really difficult, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. 
All, all of us face trials and discouragement. And that's why God calls us to encourage and support one another. God wants to, each one of us to build each other up, to exhort each other. And I've said this many times before. My desire for WCC is to be a church that is uncompromising in our commitment to God and his word. I don't want to compromise one bit. But also, I want us to be over-the-top loving and encouraging. I think it's a huge way to influence the culture, and it's a huge way to build up each other if we're committed to God and his word and if we're over-the-top loving and encouraging. Okay, I think that's what God has called us to do. And then the writer concludes this section by saying, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is an additional motivation for us to gather and encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day the Lord Jesus returns. So one day Jesus is returning. I don't know when he's coming back, but I know it's nearer today than it was yesterday. And the fact that Jesus is returning to judge the world, this should create in us a sense of urgency to continue remaining faithful to him. And that includes gathering together and regularly encouraging one another. And thinking about the day of the Lord and thinking about the resurrection life to come and the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, being without sin, being in the presence of the Lord, being with our brothers and sisters throughout history in, in eternal joy and bliss, this reminds us of the hope we have in Christ. And I can tell you this, as I get older, I think more and more about the new earth and what, what is awaiting us. So this serves as a constant reminder to us that life is short and we need to have, we need to do what we can to impact people's lives with the gospel and to build up the body of Christ. And I actually thank God that Jesus has not come back yet because that means more people are going to be brought into his kingdom. And again, I'd say this for anyone who's not put your faith in Christ, my prayer is that you will see the urgency in that because the day of the Lord is coming. It's real. So turn to Christ. Trust in him now. Okay? And, and if you want someone to talk about, please, I offer this invitation a lot, but talk to me. If you have questions about the faith or anything, please come talk to me. I love, I'd love to talk with you. All right, let's go back to verse 23. This is the last section we'll be looking at. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So again, the foundational principles, since we have confidence to enter into the presence of God, since we have Jesus as our great high priest, he says we should draw near, we should encourage one another, and now he's saying we're to hold fast. He's saying we're to hold fast the confession of our hope. And he, and he says it's not only holding fast, keeping a firm grip, but it's also without wavering. That Greek word without wavering means unswerving or something that does not bend. It's solid. It's rock solid. So we're holding on to our faith, and it's something that's stable. Our hope is not fickle, in other words. Our hope is not solid one day and weak the next. No, our hope in Christ is rock solid. It's not sinking sand. It's a firm foundation. And what is it that we're holding to? He says the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. The confession, acknowledgement, a confident declaration of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. So we hold on tight to the confident declaration that Christ is Lord, that Christ alone is the source of our salvation. We hold on tight to the confession, the declaration that Christ alone is the object of our devotion and affection. 
Also, and I've said this before, but when the Bible talks about hope, it means a confident expectation. That's what hope is. It doesn't mean we're wringing our hands in worry and saying, oh, you know, I hope this works out. No, it means a confident expectation. It's not just a wish. It's confidence. So our hope is this rock-solid confidence that God has good things in store for us, that he loves us, and that he will never leave us. Our hope is this unwavering confidence that God will give us the grace we need when we need it. It's the assurance of our salvation. It's the assurance of our reconciliation with God and the glorious future that awaits us in the resurrection life to come. So it's all these things, right? So our confidence, our confident hope is not changed by the circumstances of our lives or by trials. We are to be unwavering in our trust clinging to the truth of God's word and standing firm, relying on his promises, even in the face of challenges. Also, look at at verse 23. Look at the basis of our hope. It says, for he who promised is faithful. That's what it says at the end of verse 23. God's faithful. He doesn't lie. God is not tricking us, right? Our hope is a confident assurance anchored in the promises of God because God is faithful. Because he never lies, we can always count on our Lord. That's why we should hold fast to the confession of our hope. I'm going to close with this. Big picture. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians who were suffering. Okay? They were suffering. They were struggling. They were struggling to hold fast to their faith because they were going through a lot of suffering. And the older I get, the more aware I've become of this fact. That life can be incredibly difficult. There are certain seasons of life where it can be really hard to just get up in the morning. (laughs) It can be really difficult to hold fast to the Lord. That's who he's writing to in Hebrews. Sometimes it can be incredibly difficult to hold fast to the confession of our hope. You know, we talk about the victorious Christian life. And that's what I want, right? The victorious Christian life. I'm glad we talk about that. But I can tell you this. In a season of immense suffering... Sometimes the victorious Christian life is nothing more than getting up in the morning and making it through the day with even a mustard seed of faith. Because even a mustard seed of faith is real faith. That's holding fast. Sometimes a victorious Christian life doesn't look that victorious, just being honest. Sometimes it's saying, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Sometimes it's being like Peter and saying to Jesus, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Where else are we going to go? That that doesn't exactly sound like a ringing endorsement, does it? That doesn't sound like the victorious Christian life. I believe. Help my unbelief. But you know what? Especially in a season of suffering, that is holding fast. It may not look amazing, but the Lord sees it. He sees it. He sees you. And he cares. And I will say this. If you're in a season of suffering, understand first, the season will end. It will end. It's a season. Also understand that your suffering is not pointless. God has a purpose in your suffering. It's not meaningless. God is sovereign. And he is good. And he knows more than you do. God is really smart. Did you know that? He's really, really smart. So get that settled in your mind 
before you go through the suffering. Don't wait until you're going through suffering before you start thinking about how to deal with it. Get it settled in your mind beforehand. And remember again, your suffering is not meaningless. So get that settled. And hold, and, and, and hold fast to your hope in Christ. That's what God is telling us to these suffering Jewish believers. If you're going through a spiritual desert right now, you know what? God brings all of his children through a spiritual desert. And here's the encouraging part. That's really where he forms us. That's where he teaches us to rely on him. A season of suffering or spiritual desert is not the time to give up on God. A time of suffering, even immense suffering, is not the time to give up on Jesus. No. Because that's when he is doing the most work in our lives. We may not feel it, we may not see it, but it's true. And that's the time to hold fast to Jesus. Again, sometimes life can be incredibly difficult, but as God's people, I can tell you this, we will hold fast to the Lord. Do you know that? You will. You will hold fast to the Lord, no matter what. Even if it feels like you can't hold on any longer, even if it feels like you're letting go, it doesn't matter. You will continue holding fast to him. You will remain connected to him. You will always be in union with Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because he who promised is faithful. And ultimately, ultimately, you will hold fast to God in faith, not because of anything in you. You hold fast to him. You hold fast to Jesus because he will hold fast to you. He will never let you go. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. God, I thank you for your word. Um, Just at this point, Lord, I do pray for people who are going through immense suffering right now. I don't know it all, but you do. And I know there are people here and people who will probably hear this sermon later who are going through terrible suffering. We pray for them. Also, there are people who don't have any suffering they're going through right now, but they will be going through suffering very soon. And we pray that you would get all of us settled in our minds and our hearts that, Jesus, you are good, that you are a high priest, you've made a way to God, and we can hold fast to you because you will hold fast to us. You're faithful, and you love your people, and you're never going to let us go. And I do pray, Lord, as hard as it is, suffering is really hard. I remember C.S. Lewis saying, the problem of pain. Suffering is painful. That's what the word means. It's painful. It's, it's very difficult to go through suffering. But you have a purpose in it. You have a meaning in it. And I pray we would get that settled as well. And that during those seasons, after we pass through them, we will look back and go, I cannot believe I went through that, but it was because of God. It was because of Jesus holding me. And I didn't even know it. We'll look back and see what he's done, what you've done, God, in our lives. So, Lord, I do lift up people who are suffering, who are about to go through it. Help them, Lord. And you are good and you love us. Help us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. We praise you. And thank you that that we have an eternity in front of us. Jesus, one day you're returning. You're going to raise your people from the grave. And we will no longer experience any pain or suffering or heartbreak or sin. We'll just be overwhelmed with your beauty and glory and goodness, and it'll just be unspeakable joy throughout eternity. Thank you for that truth, and we pray this in Christ's name.